Join me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, we continue in our walk through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As we look at each verse this morning, we are in verses 25 through 32 in Ephesians 4. The title of our sermon is Christian Living Part 1. Our key words for worshipers in training are truth, anger, and work. Oh, I have uh, two peach trees in my backyard, and I've been trying to grow them for five years now. I love peaches. And when I moved to Georgia about 14 years ago, it was something I was most excited about, living in the peach state. Now, nobody told me before I got here that South Carolina actually produces more peaches than Georgia does annually, but thankfully they're right across the bridge and I will eat all of their peaches as well. But I was excited to get those trees in the ground. The only thing better than a fresh peach is picking a fresh peach off of your own tree in your own backyard and eating it while it's still warm from the sun. I love it when the juice runs down my arm as I savor that thing in my mouth. But I actually say all this assuming that's a great thing, going in your backyard to pick your own peaches to eat off your tree, because after five years of growth, my peaches still have not gotten any larger than a golf ball. And they're too hard, and they're too bitter to eat. So there's some fruit growing, but it's not much. And it's not great to taste. But every year when springtime rolls in, I see the flowers come on those trees and I see the leaves start to come off the branches and I get excited. Maybe this will be the year. And I'm waiting. There's buds on there right now. We'll see what they turn into. And every kind of gardening is like that for me. If you've ever gardened anything at the beginning of the season, there's a lot of anticipation. The plants look great. Your beds are rid of all of the weeds. Things are growing. But it's a waiting game to see if there's any fruit that's going to come about. So many things can mess up the process along the way. Not enough water. Too much water bugs, too much sunlight, not enough sunlight, the pH in your soil is all wrong, but when it all works out, it's a beautiful thing. And most of the stuff you get off the plant is not going to look exactly like it does in the grocery store because they get rid of all the odd shapes and sizes. But there's just nothing like picking your own food that you've grown and cared for on your own. And I love how the Lord Jesus uses agricultural illustrations when he talks about the Christian life so often because we can relate to that experience and there's so much to be said of that experience. It's it's such a fitting picture of what things are like for us when God saves us and sets us on a journey to make much of him in the Christian life. Time and time again, we see the Lord likening our Christian life to a plant, and, and the big question all along the way is what fruit is going to be produced? And if it does produce fruit, what will it be and what will it look like? See, my peach trees, they have fruit on them, but it's still not very useful. There's still a lot to be done. Simultaneously, I've had a, a rosemary plant that has lived through three winters, a whole lot of weeds, and is still making my food look and taste and smell delicious. Now, every plant grows at a different pace. Some of them get a certain point 
and they quit altogether without producing any fruit at all. Others grow big and strong and produce more than you can ever think to keep up with. This is a great picture of what goes on in the church among the people of God. Now, if you'll recall the passage we looked at last week, Paul explained that in the Christian life, the old man, the old person, the old way of life is put off while the new man, the new life, the new person is put on. He drew this comparison between the old self and the new self. And remember, we said that if we're ever going to have any kind of meaningful relationship with God, if we're going to have a life wherein we are producing useful fruit for the kingdom of God that pleases God, that brings glory to God, that is consistent with who we are in Jesus Christ, we're going to have a life where we're examining ourselves, examining everything about the way we live our lives, putting off what belongs to the old self and putting on what belongs to the new self. If we are healthy, growing Christians, just like a healthy, growing plant, we will develop over time and we will see fruit. The fruit may be small at first. It may take some time before it's useful, but there will be some kind of fruit. And Paul's going to help us see that if we put on the new self, the only reliable evidence of our doing so is not our past experience of professing that we are in Christ, but living a present life that reflects the fact that I am in Christ. 1 John 2.4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. New life in Christ is distinguished by genuine Christian fruit. And by that fruit, we know that we have put off the old self and put on the new self and will strive to do so each and every day as God's people. But what is that fruit? We can't go looking for fruit on a tree if we don't know what it's supposed to look like or what it's supposed to be. Apples don't grow on peach trees. And the very last thing, uh, the, the, the very least, the thing I need to know is what kind of tree I'm looking at so I know what kind of fruit to look for. And in our case, as we look at our text this morning, we know that we're looking for the kind of fruit that comes about in a Christian life, a genuine Christian life, walking with Jesus Christ. Which means we are, according to Paul, going to be seeing what the fruit is of a life that is designated as a new creation. So if we are new creations, what kind of fruit will be produced? And in the section we're looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul begins to describe that fruit to us. He tells us what to be looking for, what to expect to see in our lives or in the lives of anyone who professes to be a Christian. Now, I hope you remember what we said in the first three chapters of Ephesians, that, that Paul lays a theological foundation to build on, and now he's building on that theological foundation with ethical and practical outworkings of our theology. So we have to keep in mind everything that Paul has already mentioned in the preceding chapters. And it's a, essentially, it was a detailed explanation of what God is doing in choosing and redeeming and adopting and empowering and strengthening and preserving his people through all of their Christian lives all the way onto our everlasting life with Christ in heaven. Now remember, 
Paul told us in the beginning that God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And though we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following after Satan as sons and daughters of disobedience, by grace we were saved through faith and raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places to show the immeasurable riches of the grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, so that we might do all of the good works that were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's chapters 1 and 2. And he goes on and tells us that as the people of God, we are now united as the people of God. We're not Jew or Gentile or free or slave or male or female, but we are one in Christ Jesus with all of that wall of hostility being knocked down. And so the division has been taken out that we might be united with the people of God. So Paul prays that our knowing all of this will strengthen us, will encourage us, will make us all the more able and ready to do what God sets before us because Christ is dwelling in our hearts through faith and we are rooted and grounded in love. And then in chapter 4, Paul connected who we are in Christ as individuals with what we are now as the body of Christ, as the church. And he's given each and every one of us a spiritual gift, and those gifts are used for building us up, for the church, for us to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and to not be confused and taken away by error, but firmly rooted in the truth, which is held to and communicated in love, that we might grow up in every way in Christ who joins us and holds us together as equipped saints, doing what we're called to do to advance the mission of the church to the glory of God. So that's a summary of what we have seen in Ephesians thus far. So if you haven't heard any of my other sermons, there you go. You just got it in two minutes. So Paul told us, in light of all of this, in light of all that God has done for you and in you and is doing and will do through you, Don't live like you used to. Remember last week we saw that if you are a child of God, your life will look very different. The way you think will be different. The way you act will be different. The way you respond will be different. The way you do what you do will be different because you're not the same person you used to be. The old man has been put to death, so the new man must live in the newness of life that has been given to him. Not in the former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires, but the new man who is created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. And in these verses that follow, in fact, I'll say in the chapters that follow in Ephesians, Paul gives us a taste of what it looks like for each and every one of us to live now in light of all that he has laid on our foundation. Ephesians 4, 25 to the end of the book is very challenging to Christians. It's not difficult in terms of understanding it or even believing what Paul is writing, but it's challenging in the sense that it's going to bring all of us low. Paul intends to bring us to the end of ourselves while simultaneously being reminded of what he has done in all of the previous chapters that we might persevere. So he's telling us from here on out, Here's what your fruit should look like. 
Here's what the Christian life is. Here's a description of the new self that has been put on and the old self that has been put off. But remember, you are a child of God and that is not going to change. So there's much to be thankful for and there's much to rejoice in while you're simultaneously being plowed under by the law. So with all that in mind, let's read verses 25 through 32 of chapter 4. It's on page 978 in the Blue ESV Bibles. Beginning in verse 25, Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now today I want to provide us with a general overview of the text that we might see how all of this works together before we really jump into the individual verses. I don't think Paul really wrote this section with the preacher in mind. You know how we like our nice, tidy passages to make three points to tie it all together. We have here this series of sort of mountain ranges that Paul just drops one after the other after the other. And all of them are these major principles of Christian living. Each one could very easily be a sermon or a series in and of itself. And we're going to do some of that. Uh, we're not going to look at every verse, individual sermons, but we're going to do a lot of that. So, so we see Paul dealing with a lot of big things in this section. He's dealing with honesty. He's talking about anger. He's talking about work. He's talking about our speech and about what proceeds from our mouths and what comes from our hearts and our interactions with one another as we, uh, and how we treat with one another and all of that he does in these few verses. But we can see the unifying theme of all of this is the fruit of the Christian life. What is a Christian life? What does it look like? What is distinctive about a Christian life? That's going to be something Uh, Today will be something of an unusual sermon in many ways. We're not going to go verse by verse through this passage today. We'll start that next Lord's Day through this passage. But I think it's important that we understand some basic principles about Christian living that undergird all of the imperatives that are going to come in these verses before we take on what we're being called to. So I have two main principles. And you know it's not ordinary because it's just two instead of three this morning. Two main principles, and they're quite similar in a lot of ways, but they're important as distinctives for us to make. They're principles that will guide us as we consider what is Christian living. If we're going to have healthy, beautiful, useful fruit on our tree of faith, we need to know exactly what's going to get us there. So the first principle for us to consider is this. 
Christian living is not behavior modification. Christian living is not behavior modification. It's really easy to look at these verses and think, well, Paul's issue is behavior. I just need to clean up my behavior and I'll be fine. That's the issue. I just need to be good. And if if that were the case, it's easy to come to the same conclusion that many people actually do come to, namely that Christianity is just like every other religion and philosophy in the world. Now remember, Paul and the Ephesians are, are surrounded by all kinds of competing religious and philosophical ideas. I was... There was a sort of common run-of-the-mill paganism, which in many ways was actually quite moral in terms of what was required of the people. The Greeks had their own system of ethics and morality. The Stoics had their system of ethics and morality. That's not to say that there wasn't a tremendous amount of debauchery and licentiousness. But it was mixed in with a form of morality. There were many different kinds of sinful acts then, just as there are today. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to the hearts of men. However, it wasn't just this sort of pagan free-for-all. People had some sense of what they defined as right and what they defined as wrong. Or uh, we can consider today Islamic ethics. There is a very strict morality within Islamic law. You see it in Eastern mysticism, religions like Hinduism and and Buddhism and Taoism. There are certain things that ring true about this list that we've read that Paul gives us that can be found in many different ethical systems and religious and philosophical ways of thinking. And so a lot of people would come to this and simply conclude, well, all religions are simply uh, alike. They're just basically alike, so just believe what you want, and in the end, everyone's going to end up in the same place. So, it is an important and valid question to ask when we come to a passage like this, well, what's the difference? Because all of us, on some level, are going to be confronted with that. Perhaps you've struggled with it yourself. If this is what Paul is saying a Christian life looks like, how is it different from any other kind of morality? How do Christian ethics differ from other religious ethics? This is a really good lesson for us in not isolating texts. If you just brought me verses 25 through 32, I would probably agree. Yeah, you're right. It's it's just like most other kind of moral ways of thinking. There's a few differences here and there, but not a lot of, uh, nothing that's real major. But there is a major difference. And that major difference is the linchpin to the entire thing that we have to get unless we just reduce Christianity all down to behavior modification. What is it that we have to get? Well, it's verses 17 through 24. It's what we looked at last week. Remember, this is a letter. This is an isolated text. Paul wrote this whole thing and meant it to be read all at one time. In fact, as I said earlier, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4 and verse 24 need to be read and digested before we get to this ethical, moral uh, kind of section that he's given to us. Everything here builds upon what we already know. And what we already know is critical, is essential in terms of defining the difference. Paul tells us, listen, God has changed you by making you his child. And as a result of that, 
I'm telling you that you shouldn't be walking in the way of your neighbors who are worldly in their walking. That's not who you are in Christ. You're someone completely different. You've put all of that off and put something else on. In other words, before we get to these imperatives about our behavior, we have to see that Paul is first saying, you've been radically transformed in Christ. You see that? It's really in verse 24. In verse 22, he said, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. But then look at verse 24. He says, put on the new self, and the next word is critical, created after the likeness of God. That language is important. You're created after the likeness of God when you are in Christ. In true righteousness and holiness, he says. So what's the point? The point is that when you are made a new creation in Christ, you have a new righteousness, and it's not your own. You have a new holiness, which is now achievable and desirable when it was once impossible and despised. That's the difference. Look, the focus is not on, hey, I used to live a life filled with lust, but now I'm a Christian, so I don't lust anymore. Or I was basically, I was a pathological liar, but now I'm a Christian, so I don't lie anymore. Okay, are those things true? Yes, they may be. They should be on some level. But that's far too minor. That is too insignificant in terms of what God is doing in his people. This isn't about modifying some bad behaviors. This is about a complete conversion where everything is turned upside down. If Paul was just saying, hey, nothing about your heart needs to be changed, nothing about you needs to really change other than you shouldn't lie and you shouldn't be unrighteously angry. If that's the case, then we're right back with every religious system and philosophical idea. But he doesn't say that. He makes all of this conditional. If, and this is so vital, this is so important, if you are in Christ, then you can do these things. So you see, Christianity is not behavior modification. Something else has to come first. Because even if you try as hard as you can, apart from Christ, you do not have the ability to maintain whatever moral principles you're trying to maintain. Sin is so pervasive in the hearts of mankind, every man, woman, and child, that apart from regeneration, apart from a new life in Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, your only real option is sin. Man, apart from Christ, cannot not sin, and he cannot please God. It's impossible. So we might look at someone else's life, we might look at our neighbor's life who's not in Christ and say, well, they're pretty moral. And we can know for certain that their morality is not sustained or sustainable. And it is driven by self-righteous, self-serving desires and not godly desires because God is not working in and through them. So, if Christian living is not behavior modification... If it's not just about looking at verses 25 through 32 and doing what it says and I'm good, then what is it? That's the second thing I want us to think about this morning. Christian living means everything changes from the inside out. All of the language of the Bible that speaks of new life in Christ identifies that it's something far more significant than changing our behavior. Remember Jesus' conversation with the Pharisee in the night named Nicodemus in John 3? 
He told him in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we have this language there of new birth. There's a new person that must be brought into this world. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Notice it's a very distinct way that Paul speaks of the Christian, a new creation. Not just different, not just changed, but altogether new. The old has gone, it has passed away. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, Paul writes, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is using that language once again of the old man being put to death being crucified in order that the new man, the new self, might live as he has been called to live in Christ. And then, of course, as we've already looked at, verses 17 through 24 in Ephesians 4, there are numerous passages like this throughout the Bible, speaking of the Christian life as something that is new. New life, new creation, new man, new self. And in order for that to happen... We have to be changed from the inside out. We need new hearts, not new behaviors. Your heart, the Bible says, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So what do we need? We need God's promise to be true. We need God to do what he said he would do for his people. When he said, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. We need that to be true because without new hearts, we have no hope. Isn't that what Jesus was constantly hammering with the Pharisees? They were content to simply polish the outside of some very dirty cups on the inside. They were concerned about their externals. They, they wanted to look good. They wanted to sound good. They wanted to appear holy. They wanted to appear righteous. They wanted everyone to look on them and think that they were far greater than they were because their hearts were all messed up, their motives were all wrong, and their desires were all evil. What were the Pharisees doing? The Pharisees were doing behavior modification. What were they not doing? They were not doing new life, transformed and made new. Friends, if you're not a Christian or your idea about the Christian life is simply that you do certain things and don't do certain other things, you've, you've misheard the story. This is what every other religion in the world is about. There are certain things they tell you to do and certain other things they tell you not to do and you spend your whole life trying on your own to either do or not do those things so as to make God happy with you or to avoid some kind of punishment. But Christianity says, listen, you can't do those things on your own because you need a new heart and only God can replace your heart and give you a new one. And oh, by the way, if you don't have a new heart... 
The standard you are judged by is absolute perfection of all of God's law at all times from the very second you are conceived until the moment you die. So you see, the standard isn't what the world religions make it to be. The standard is is much higher. The standard's not good enough. The standard is perfection. It's not try harder and do better. So Christianity comes in and says that's what God requires because he says so, but the problem is you can't do that. You need someone who can, and that someone is Christ. So he lived a perfect law-fulfilling life because you couldn't. He died the sinner's death, the very death that you deserved and should die so that you wouldn't have to. And if you put your faith and trust in him, his law-keeping will count as your law-keeping. His death will count as your death. His righteousness will be your righteousness. You will have a right standing before God. And when that happens, when we have faith in Christ and repent of our sins and begin walking in the Christian life, it's, it's not just a matter of trying really hard to do something new. It's a matter of God actually giving us new desires. I now have a new want in my heart to walk in these ways. And it's everything getting rearranged whether we thought we wanted it rearranged or not. And for people who don't understand what's going on when someone becomes a Christian, they start to see some big changes. And they probably get a little bit weirded out or scared because there's a sort of disorganization that takes place for a while. You may know that in your own life. You see it as uh, other people become Christians. God is working in your heart and your way of talking and your way of thinking and your way of acting. It all changes drastically. But at the same time, you don't really know a lot. So for a while, it just looks really confused. Have you ever cleaned out a garage? That's a, that's a real joy, isn't it? I look forward to that. But you know, you have all this stuff, and it's just been piling up. And it's tossed over here and over there. And you drag it all out in the driveway, and you start to go through it. Oh, for a long time, while it's sitting out in your driveway, it doesn't look like something very great is going on, right? It's a terrible mess. But you know, as things are getting organized, this is going on that shelf over there, that's going to hang on the wall over here. But if someone just walks up and looks at that driveway in the middle of all of it, they'll think, what's happened? Oh my goodness, did Lowe's just throw up on your driveway? What's going on? No, the garage is undergoing a transformation. Something new is going on here. Some things have to be thrown away completely. Some things have to be cleaned up. It all is going to be reoriented. And when it starts to come together, it's, it, we see it. It's becoming something beautiful. It's orderly. It's functional. I can use it again because it's not buried way back in the corner where I can't get to it. Now, of course... The illustration breaks down if your garage keeping skills are like mine because in a month it's right back to where it was. But forget that part of it. But hear this. If something like that doesn't take place in your life, if there's not really any kind of disorganization, if nothing is happening to you that at least makes some people stop and wonder what's going on, if there's, if there's not that much change or if this kind of transformation that Paul is talking about isn't evident in any way, then maybe there really isn't that transformation taking place. 
Because Paul says the change is so radical that you're putting off the old self. That self, that person that you were, is put to death. And there's a new self, a new life. So that means now, as you go through life and consider the things you want and the things you do, that you are asking the question, is this what God wants to happen? Does this affect the way I walk with Jesus? Does this profit the kingdom in any way? Or does it take away from it? Who else asks those kinds of questions? Christians don't look at life and say, well, that's just how things are. Uh, For Americans or for white people or black people or for our socioeconomic status or our culture, our neighborhood, that's just the way it is, so we just live life that way. The Christian is, is brought above all of those things and looks at all of those things and says, they may be significant, but they're not first. Our first obligation is to our king and his kingdom because I'm now a part of a new society where my whole life is being reoriented. My whole life is being reorganized. So, so I hope you see there's a big difference here be, between when the Christian reads verses 25 through 32 and how everyone else might see these things. These commands now aren't something I'm, I'm going to do to try and earn something. Now, those commands are are a more natural part of how I do life because I want to know what my king wants and I want what my king wants. And so we don't go through life uncritically, nor do we go through life just just trying uh, to, to will ourselves to do everything. We examine all of life and we ask, is this what God wants from me? And then we turn to God that he will provide us with strength, he will give us right thinking, he will give us right hearts to do it. So putting off the old self and putting on the new self means that our lives are completely reoriented in every way because we are changed from the inside out. So let's try it out. Let's take it for a spin. We'll get into this more next week, but, but I want to look at one of these verses and see how this works. Look at verse 29. We can have a very moral sort of religious system that completely agrees with let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Mormonism agrees with that. Jehovah's Witness agrees with that. Islam agrees with that. So you could ask any one of them, why not? Why not let corrupting talk come out of my mouth? And they will say, because we said so. Or because it's wrong to let corrupting talk come out of your mouth? Because the boogeyman will get you? Because it's, right, it's the right thing to do? So the goal then is to will it to happen. And if it doesn't actually happen in any kind of sustained way, then we just need to try harder. So now let's ask the Christian. The Christian says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And we ask, why not? Well, what's the answer? Well, if you're in Christ, that's not who you are. What comes out of your mouth betrays your very identity, and if it's corrupt, it's not pleasing to God, and it's not representative of the God that you are an ambassador of to the world. You have an identity as a child of God whose desire is to edify and to give grace to those who hear, not to kill and destroy with words. And because God is your Father... 
You know what he has done for you. You know what he wants. And in the same way, you wouldn't let corrupting talk come out of your your mouth as you speak to him. As a Christian, your desire will be reoriented so that you will have no desire for corrupting talk to come out of your mouth toward others. Because that would disrespect the relationship I have with God. Because God has not let corrupting talk come out of his mouth towards you. You see the difference? And it's not a mechanical thing. It's a completely organic thing. There are, there, are, there are two sides to it. You're putting on the new self while God is renewing you in spirit and in your mind. That really is what happens. And, and we could go through every command of the Bible and answer, answer the, the question of how this is, is going on. When God, when God says to do something or not to do something, it's all based on the reality that we are in Christ. And we're not just trying to modify our behavior. We're recognizing that the Spirit dwells within us. That the Spirit is changing us from inside out so that we are made able to obey God so that we would have the desire to honor and obey God with our lives through and through. So here's the deal then as Christians. When we don't do what we're commanded to do by God, and when we do let corrupting talk come out of our mouths, for example, we are free men and women acting as though we are prisoners. Apart from Christ, you are in the prison of sin. You're in the jail of sin and you can't get out. You can't run free. You're locked in sin. And the only escape is that Jesus would set you free. But when you're in Christ, you have been set free. And so when you sin as a Christian, you're, you're, you're not obligated to do it, but you do it anyway. You're doing so foolishly. You're on the outside of the prison acting like you want to get back inside. And so you're doing what you're not obligated to do and to do it is to act foolishly because it's in rebellion against the very one who has lifted you out and placed you on the outside. And listen, this is completely bound up in the heart. Not even Satan, not even the evil one himself, if he himself came and attacked you, not even he could make the Christian sin. No one can make you go back inside that prison. So to do so is to do so on your own. And here's where it all comes down to when when we make the difference here. What is your motive for change? What is your motive for obedience to God's commands? For the Christian, it's different from everyone else. For the Christian, it's humble gratitude. It's not pride and self-satisfaction. Notice something about the list that we get from Paul here in these verses. He's saying things like, don't lie, control your temper, control your tongue, don't steal, work hard, give to the poor. But right in the middle of all of that, there's this really weird one that doesn't seem to fit the rest. Right in the middle, there's this command. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's right there in the text. What's that all about? We'll get to the full extent of that later, but here's the point. Never, ever, ever will you find it in any other ethical system that anything comes close to telling you anything like this. All other religious philosophical systems will say, don't lie and don't steal because that's the right thing to do, or don't lie and don't steal because the consequences will hurt you. 
Now, of course, those things are true, but what Paul says and what Christianity says is don't do it because you will grieve your friend who lives in your very own heart and he is your God. You grieve over somebody only if you love them. You only grieve over someone or something if it's very dear to you. And when you sin, in fact, when you rebel, the text tells us right here that God is grieved. Never forget that. Let that dawn on you. Let that transform your personality. This will turn you into a person who's not just a a, a Christian who is, is more conscious about living like a Christian, but one that is actually doing it. When, God, when you sin, God doesn't sort of chastise you, tell you you're an insubordinate punk or something. God doesn't need you in reality, but God has bound himself up with you so much so that when you sin, he's actually grieved. His, point, his power is not weakened by your sin, but he is grieved in your sin. Now, why should you not lie? Because it grieves your friend, that's why. Why should you not let corrupting talk come out of your mouth? Because your God is grieved by that. I hope that works on our hearts. And we'll find ourselves much more able to tell the truth, much more able to deal with our anger, to control our tongues, to keep from stealing, to work hard, to give to the poor, all the things he mentions here, because we don't want to grieve our friend who loves us and who dwells within us. That's the dynamic. That's the heart. That's how different you are from everyone else. Because you've put off the old self and you've put on the new and your identity is very different. Be made new. That's what he's calling us to and that's what all of this is about. Put on the new self. Live a life of love toward the greatest friend you'll ever have. And he's always with you because he's within you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for reminding us again from your word that while you command us in many ways with many things that we're reminded that we in and of ourselves in no way can possibly do what you call us to do. We are in great need of Christ. We are in great need of being made new, of being changed from the inside out. Not so that our behaviors will be modified, but so that we will please you and not grieve the spirit that dwells within us. And we thank you, God, that we don't look to your commands as believers and despise them and reject them and simply do them out of a mere sense of duty because we have to, but that you give us a desire, a longing because we want to, because we want to honor you, because we want to show our thankfulness towards you. Because Jesus has told us if we love him, then we will do what he commands. Thank you for putting that love in our hearts because Christ first loved us. I pray, God, that as we consider in the weeks ahead all of these things that you have commanded, that we are reminded that it is not by us, it is not by our hands, it is not by anything we can do in and of ourselves, but it is by the power of the Spirit working within us as we follow after Christ, as we seek to make much of him, and as we rejoice in our salvation, as you have changed us from the inside out. May it be evident that you are constantly working 
to reorganize our lives and to make them to look more like Christ. And may we receive all that comes with that with joy. Father, would you do these things for your glory, for your namesake, and for the good of your church? We pray asking all in Jesus' name. Amen.